Let's read, read the word of the Lord together, shall we? Isaiah 53, we'll begin at verse 1. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people, to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many, and interceded for the transgressors. Now, Lord, open our hearts that we may hear what the Spirit will say to us in the midst of the preaching. I lift up other life-giving churches to you, and I pray blessing upon them. I pray for our loved ones not yet walking in right relationship with you. Draw them, I pray, to a place of repentance. I especially, Lord, pray for our sons and daughters who have wandered from the faith. Don't let one of them be lost, I pray. Send the Holy Spirit after them. Convict them. Draw them to your side. I pray these things in the only name that matters, the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. If you were looking for a short, concise biography of the life of Jesus, you wouldn't have to look any further than the chapter we just read as the text for the message today. Written some 700 years before the birth of Jesus, the prophet Isaiah had a revelation of the life of this man that is amazing in the accuracy 
of its detail. Writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Isaiah was able to look through the telescope of time and record in synopsis form the life of the one who was to come as the promised Messiah. Over the last several weeks, I've been preaching to you about the importance of putting your trust in Jesus. And I've approached this subject from many different angles, about as many different angles as I could find to approach it. I've tried to apply it to many different circumstances. I've used many different Bible stories to illustrate the various ways trust was expressed by some of the Bible's greatest heroes. And in this chapter, from the pen of the prophet Isaiah, I want you today to hear the greatest story ever told. It's the story of Jesus. And from this story, I pray that you will make the most important decision of trust you will ever make. Isaiah begins by writing about the mystery of his birth. He says in verses 1 and 2, Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. When, when Isaiah talks about the arm of the Lord, he's talking about God's mighty power. You know, if you want to see God's mighty power revealed, it's revealed in a person. This person to reveal God's mighty power doesn't come in a way you might expect. He doesn't come with kings. He doesn't come with armies. He doesn't come with diplomats. Instead, Isaiah writes, he comes like a tender shoot. He comes like a root out of parched ground. Think of it. Here is something powerful and strong coming out of a dry, barren desert, a tender little plant. Out of the place of no expectation, life miraculously springs forth. It's a picture of the birth of the Savior. It's a beautiful metaphor of the virgin birth of Jesus. Unless you think I'm reading too much into this verse, I want to remind you that Isaiah had already said in chapter 7, verse 14, that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. He already said in chapter 9, verse 6, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. Think about it. A child will be born. That's his humanity. A son will be given. That's his deity. Now, there's a reason followers of Jesus make such a big deal about the virgin birth. In the mid-1800s, there was a man by the name of Gregor Mendel who has come to be known as the father of genetics. After studying reproduction, Mendel developed what came to be called laws of genetics. One of the laws says that every individual born into this world is the sum total of the characteristics of both parents. That simply means that in terms of your genetics, all that was in your father and your mother is in you. Some of the genes you inherit are dominant, some of the genes are recessive, but you get them from both parents. And with that in mind, just suppose for a moment that the father of Jesus was Joseph and Mary was his mother. Well, if that were true, then all that was in Mary and Joseph would have been in Jesus. Jesus would have been nothing more than human because Mary and Joseph were only humans. And being humans, they would have been part of the fallen race of humanity. As a human son of human 
parents, there would be no hope for salvation through Jesus because a son of slaves can't redeem slaves. Well, then suppose, on the other hand, that his father is God and somehow his mother is also divine. Well, in that case, he would have no humanity at all because all that was in his parents would be in him. Though he would be God, he would be remote and he would be unable to save because you can't be redeemed by God. You have to be redeemed by a man. The reason you have to be redeemed by a man is because your inheritance, your spiritual inheritance, was legally lost by the first man, Adam. And it must be legally regained by the second man, the Lord Jesus. God couldn't redeem you as God. He had to redeem you as a man. So had both parents been human, Jesus would have been only human. Had both parents been divine, Jesus would have been only divine. But Jesus was born of a virgin. The father was God himself. The mother was Mary. Jesus was the God-man. That doesn't mean he was half God and half man. He was all God and he was all man. He was as much God as if he were not man at all. And he was as, at the same time as much man as if he were not God at all. Don't ever discount the importance of the virgin birth. If he had not been born of a virgin, he would have been a son of Adam, just like you and me. And the Bible says that in Adam, all die. Had he not been born of a virgin, he would have not been sinless. Had he not been sinless, then he could not have offered a blood atonement. He could only have died for his own sin. So no virgin birth, no deity. No deity, no sinlessness. No sinlessness, no atonement. No atonement, no forgiveness. No forgiveness, no hope of heaven. Jesus was born of a virgin that you might be born again. Jesus came to earth so that you might go to heaven. Jesus became a son of man that you might become a child of God. Isaiah points to this incredible truth as he tells about the mystery of his birth. But then Isaiah writes about the next chapter in the story of Jesus, the manner of his life. He says in verses 2 through 4, he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. What the prophet is saying is simply that if you were to see the Lord Jesus, you wouldn't be dazzled by his looks. It doesn't mean he was ugly, just that he was nondescript. You couldn't just look at him and immediately recognize, ah, that's the Messiah. Mm. I, I don't know if you've ever spent much time looking at some of the religious art of the great masters of previous generations. But in many of the pictures of Jesus, when you see him painted, he has this big circle behind his head. It looks like a big dinner plate. Have you seen that? You know, that's the way they depict him, the, the holiness. Of, of, they, they put this big circle, you know. I want to tell you, if you were to pass Jesus on the street, you would never have seen that. He was, he was so ordinary looking 
that when Judas went to betray him, he had to give the guards a sign so they would arrest the right man. In appearance, Jesus was this plain, ordinary man. He didn't look like a model that just stepped off the runway. He didn't have a megawatt smile. He wasn't surrounded by paparazzi. Nowhere in the Bible does it speak of his physical features and his physique. He's not described as handsome or witty or charming. Instead, there's no form, no comeliness, no beauty that we should desire him. He lived as an ordinary man walking in sandaled feet. And there's a reason he lived that way. You see, God knows human nature. He knows how easily we are bedazzled by outward appearance rather than inward reality. That's why when Jesus came into this world, he laid aside all of the glory, all of the splendor, all of the majesty. Listen, listen, if God wanted to convince you that he exists, he would not have any difficulty proving his existence. Mm -mm. You know, all he'd have to do would be reach down in this building, pull the roof off and say, boo. (laughs) And you'd say, I believe, I believe, you know. He could speak from heaven. He could stop the world on its axis, and the whole world would sit up and pay attention. But the reason God doesn't do that is because that's not the kind of relationship he desires. See, he doesn't want you to serve him because you're frightened of him. He doesn't want you to serve him because he forced you or because he bribed you. See, when Jesus did miracles, I don't know if you know this, they weren't publicity stunts. He wasn't trying to impress people. In fact, often when Jesus would do a miracle, he would say, look, don't tell anybody I did this. Don't tell anybody about this. Israel rejected him as their Messiah because they were looking for a dazzling personality. They were looking for a political activist, but he didn't come that way. Jesus laid aside all of the splendor, but he laid aside none of the character. There was inherent in the Lord Jesus all the beauty, all the nature, all the internal glory of God. And God made man in such a way that when the heart is right, the heart will respond to God in faith, just like the ear responds to sound and the eye responds to light. Isaiah tells of the mystery of of his birth. He tells of the manner of his life. And he continues the story and tells the meaning of his death. He writes about this horrible chapter in the life of Jesus in verses 4 through 9. And when you read that section, you discover that his death wasn't incidental. His death wasn't accidental. His death was fundamental. Jesus was born for the express purpose to die. He said in John 10, 18, no man takes away my life, but I lay it down of myself. You know, in just a couple of weeks, we're going to be celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. But what you must never forget is that before there can be a resurrection, there must first be a crucifixion. Before there is the crown of glory, there is the crown of thorns. Isaiah looked through the telescope of time and saw the death of the Messiah. And and when he saw that, he didn't just see the event, but he saw the meaning of his death. 
the primary meaning, the primary purpose of the death of Jesus on the cross was substitution. The prophet says it like this in verse 6. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. You know, if you were looking for one word in the Bible to characterize and and epitomize the nature of God, there are a lot of candidates. Some would suggest love. Some would think of good. Some might vote for kind or compassion or faithful. But the one word the Bible uses to describe God is the word holy. That word holy means that God is the complete other. The Bible says in the Old Testament book of Habakkuk that God is of purer eyes than to behold iniquity. God in his holiness is the very antithesis of sin. God has a holy hatred for sin. God as a holy God cannot overlook sin. Now, God is holy, humanity is sinful. And the decree of holy God is that sin is going to be judged. God never overlooks sin. God always judges sin because God is a holy God. So the question is simply this. Who's going to bear the punishment for sin? Are you going to bear it? Or is there a substitute? The question is not if the sin is going to be punished. The question is only who is going to bear the punishment. And I want to suggest to you that's the purpose of the cross. On the cross, Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, became the substitute. You deserve death. That's what the Bible says. The wages of sin is death. But the death of Jesus was him dying in your place. See, on the cross, he took the penalty for your sin. Isaiah saw him in verse 5 and said, He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. Your sin, your sin, your sin was laid on the Lord Jesus. He never sinned, but your sins were laid upon him, and he became sin for you. That's substitution. He paid the penalty for your every sin, so you don't have to try and pay it. On the cross, Jesus took your sin. I'll tell you something else. On the cross, Jesus took your shame. Isaiah said in verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. See, when Jesus was brought before his accusers, he was lied about, he was criticized, he was blasphemed, he was framed. They said all kinds of terrible things about him, but he never 
opened his mouth. He never said a word in his defense. Now, that's so uncharacteristic. When somebody makes an accusation against us, what's the first thing we do? We put up a wall of defense. We start saying, oh, no, wait a minute, you got it wrong. Either that or we lie about it. If they got it right, we want to lie about it so we can get out of it. Come on, somebody. I'm preaching better than you're responding right now. You know I'm telling you the truth. But Jesus never said a word in his defense. And the reason is because he's not only taking your sin, but he's also taking your shame. You know, think about this. Jesus could just have easily stood before Pilate and said, hey, Pilate, hold up, buddy. Before you crucify me, I just want to get one thing straight. Just for the record, I'm the Savior of the world. I've come to die for the sins of the people, and I want you to know I've worked out an arrangement with God the Father where all the sins of all the people are going to be laid upon me. I'm going to be a representative sinner for humanity. I'm going to have the sins of the world on me, but it's not really my sin, and I want you to know I'm innocent. I'm just doing this for other people. He could have done that and then gone to the cross as a hero. Had he done that, he would have died in dignity, but he didn't die in dignity. He died in shame because in that act, he was taking your shame upon himself. He took your sin. He took your shame. I also want you to see that he took your separation. Isaiah says in verse 8 that he was taken away. He says that he was cut off from the land of the living. See, on the cross, he died alone. The religious leaders were there to mock and ridicule. The demons of hell were shouting for joy. The disciples fled from him. Even God the Father turned his back on him. On the cross, Jesus in loneliness cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those words are found in Psalm 22, written by King David. But Jesus wasn't looking back, quoting David. Uh -uh. Psalm 22 is a prophetic psalm. David was looking forward, quoting what Jesus was going to say on the cross. On the cross, Jesus was bearing the same thing that those who aren't saved will one day have to endure, and that is eternal separation from Almighty God. Jesus, who had been for eternity in the bosom of the Father as, as the object of the Father's greatest love, has now become the object of the Father's greatest wrath. Jesus took the wrath of God that should have been visited upon your life into his own heart, while people mocked and and pointed their fingers in his face and shouted, he saved others, himself he cannot save. If he's the son of God, let him come down off of that cross. You wouldn't think that God would let this go on. You would think God would come to his aid, but God had turned his back. Jesus had become iniquity, and the pure, holy eyes of God cannot behold iniquity. Jesus never sinned, yet he became sin. The Lord took your sin and your sin and your sin. He took your shame. He took your separation. He died alone. Not only did he take your sin and your shame and your separation, but he took your suffering. Isaiah said in verse 9, his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man. In his death, he said in verse 10, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. The, the word where it says he was with a rich man in his death, the word that is used for death in verse 9 is an interesting one. In the Hebrew language, it's an intensive plural. 
It literally means deaths. In his deaths. What that means is that Jesus died my death. He died your death. He died the death that was assigned to everyone who has ever lived. The agony, the horrible suffering, the eternal anguish that was your due. He took it upon himself so you wouldn't have to bear it. On the cross, the sins of the world were distilled and eternity was compressed. All of the sins of all the people were put upon one individual and all of eternity was compressed into one moment of time. What I'm trying to help you understand is that Jesus being infinite suffered in a finite period of time what you being finite would suffer in an infinite period of time. Everything you would suffer because of your sin in an eternity away from God, Jesus suffered for you and 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 for for the whole world. The meaning of his death, that's, that's a horrible, gruesome chapter in the story of this man. But thankfully, that's not the end of the story. Because Isaiah also saw the miracle of his resurrection. He said in verse 10, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. He's dead. How can he see his offspring? How can his days be prolonged? How can the good pleasure of the Lord prosper in his hand? The Living Bible makes it very clear when it says in that verse, but when his soul had been made an offering for sin, then he shall have a multitude of children, many heirs, he shall live again. See, they took Jesus down from the cross and placed him in what the Bible says was a borrowed tomb. I guess it's okay to borrow a tomb if you're only going to need it for the weekend. (laughs) Pilate gave the orders to make that tomb as secure as possible. The government made it secure as possible by rolling a heavy stone across the entrance, placing a a seal upon it, and stationing guards outside of it. Unbelief made it as secure as possible. The religious elite mocked the whole idea of the resurrection. Death itself made it secure as possible. He reached out and laid his hand upon the Lord Jesus as he breathed his last and surrendered his spirit. Lo, In the grave he lay, Jesus, my Savior. But early on the morning of the first day of the week, resurrection power flowed through him. The cloth that wrapped him like a mummy could not hold him. The seal on the tomb could not hold him. 
The stone covering the entrance could not hold him. The guards outside the tomb could not hold him. The unbelief of the Sadducees could not hold him. Even the grip of death itself could not hold him. Up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph o'er his foes. Isaiah had it right. He shall live again. And I want to tell you, because he lives, he is shown to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Because he lives, that means your past can be forgiven. Because he lives, your present can be managed. Because he lives, your future can be secure. I want to tell you, because he lives, he can put your life back together. Because he lives, he can restore your losses. Because he lives, he can renew your mind. Because he lives, he can heal your body. Because he lives, he can mend your broken heart. Because he lives, he can put your marriage back together. Because he lives, he can teach you to trust again. Because he lives, he can help you to love again. Because he lives, he can cancel your doubts. Because he lives, he can remove your fears. Because he lives, he can put joy back into your life. Because he lives, he can draw a bloodline around you that the devil cannot cross. Because he lives, he has ordered a better future for you than you could have made on your own. Because he lives, you can have a new life. Because he lives, you can have a new mind. Because he lives, you can have a new hope. Because he lives, you can have have a new purpose because he lives you can have a new perspective because he lives you can have a new lease on life because he lives old things are passed away because he lives all things are new that's the miracle of the resurrection of Jesus come on praise him today praise him today hallelujah Let, let, let me show you one more thing in the story of Jesus from this chapter. Isaiah saw the mystery of his birth, saw the manner of his life, saw the meaning of his death, saw the miracle of his resurrection. And finally, Isaiah saw the magnificence of his reign. He says in verse 11, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. He writes in verse 12, therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong. Isaiah said, the Lord is going to be satisfied with the work of the Messiah. There's not anything that needs to be added to it. It truly is finished. Then he talks about dividing the booty or the spoil with the strong. Do you, do you know what the spoil is? That's, that's the loot. <laughs> that's what's left after the battle is over. Dividing the spoil. This speaks of the coming reign of the Messiah. Do, do you know who's going to share in the spoils of battle? 
everyone who has trusted in his completed work for salvation. See, when you put your trust in the completed work of Jesus, then the Bible says you are made a joint heir with the Lord Jesus. Do you know what a joint heir is? A joint, that term joint heir means simply share and share alike. Whatever Jesus gets, you get. I don't think I did that very well. Let me try, let me try that again. I said whatever Jesus gets, you get. The Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, that if we suffer with him, we shall also reign with him. Now, I'm telling you today that just as surely as Jesus came the first time, he's coming again. The babe of Bethlehem is coming again. The Redeemer is coming to stand upon this earth one more time. Now, the first time he came to die and rise again. The next time he comes, it will be to rule and reign forevermore. The first time he came as a suffering servant. The next time he'll come as a sovereign Lord. The first time he came carrying a rugged cross. The next time he'll come wearing a victor's crown. The first time he came to a limited audience. The next time he comes, every eye shall behold him. Every knee shall bow to him. Every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, before we leave this service today, I want to ask you a question. The prophet said here in verse 11, he will see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. Now, if, think about this. If there were some other way for people to be saved, don't you think God would have taken it? I mean, do you honestly think God would let his only son die in agony and blood upon that cross if you could be saved some other way? But there's only one thing that will satisfy the righteous demands of a holy God, and that's the death of Jesus upon that cross. The Lord Jesus has fulfilled his part. He has died on the cross as the substitute. He took your place so you don't have to die for your sins. He has risen from the dead to once and for all demonstrate his power over every force that would seek to keep you from God. Aren't aren't you thankful today for the cross? Aren't you thankful for the resurrection? Aren't you thankful for the hope we have in Jesus? Now, at the beginning of this message, I told you that the most important decision you will ever make is the decision to trust Jesus with your eternal destiny. Now, you know, some people will say, yeah, I'm going to trust Jesus for, to be saved in the hereafter, but in the here and now, you know, I just like to do it my way. No, you demonstrate your trust in Jesus in the hereafter by trusting him in the here and now. And I want to tell you the help you need, the answer you seek, found when you first make the decision to trust Jesus as your Savior. The bad news is you cannot save yourself. The good news is you don't have to. The only thing you have to do is come to Jesus, just just like you are. 
all your failures, all your faults, all your mess ups, all your baggage, come just like you are. Repent of your sin. Repent of going your way instead of his. You know that word repent's a great word. It just simply means you're traveling along one way and you just turn around. Go the opposite way. That's what it means to repent. I'm walking away from God. I repent. I'm going to start walking toward God. Surrender your life to the rulership of Jesus. And in that act, his victory can be your victory. Jesus is calling you today. Will you come to him? Will you pray? Will you make the ultimate decision of trust? The decision to trust Jesus. Will you respond to the invitation and surrender your life to Jesus? I'm going to ask you to bow your heads with me, please. And if the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart right now, and you realize you've not been walking with or toward Jesus, and you're making a decision today to turn around, to repent, and you're willing and ready to trust Jesus, to surrender your life to Jesus. And while our heads are bowed for just a moment and nobody's really looking around, would you just put your hand up so I can see it and put it right back down? I want to surrender my life to Jesus. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Anybody else? I'm surrendering my life to Jesus. I want to trust Jesus. Maybe you've done that, but you're, yes, sir. Maybe you've done that, but you, but you have found yourself kind of wandering away, slipping away. Maybe you're part of this online congregation right now. Right, right where you are, you can just put your hand up because you're not putting it up to me. It's, it's, it's identifying you to the Lord, saying, Lord, this is, my, this is my response to you right now. I want to surrender to you. I want to trust Jesus. Lord, I'm praying for these people now who have lifted their hand, who have said that in this moment, they want to repent. They're turning around. They're not walking away from you anymore. They're intentionally surrendering to you and walking toward you and with you. We are trusting you. We cannot save ourselves, so we ask you, O oh Lord, for Jesus' sake to save us. We trust his completed work on the cross to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. His death purchased our life. Thank you for doing that, Lord. We give up to you. We surrender to you. All that we are, all that we have, all that we ever hope to be, we surrender to you. From this day forward, we will follow you. We will serve you. We are yours. Thank you for hearing our prayer. Thank you, Lord. I pray now that you will give the assurance in the hearts of these people who are surrendering to you now. Lord, we don't have to have a sign. We don't have to have a feeling. But I'm asking you to just give a deep, settled assurance in our hearts today. 
all is well because we're trusting you. Pray this in Jesus' wonderful name.